Turn with me this morning, please, to Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, as we'll be considering verses 1 through 4 this morning. So, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Hear with me then the reading of God's Word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Thus far is the reading of God's holy and inerrant Word. Well, brothers and sisters, today we set sail on a new journey here through the book of the Thessalonians, Paul's second letter to this church. Now, if you recall the the first letter that we covered a month or two back was written shortly after Paul planted the church in Thessalonica. Uh, if, you recall, if you recall, that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 17. And if you'd like a refresher in your spare time, maybe go back over Acts 17 to see the founding of this church. But the opinion of many scholars is that 1 Thessalonians was written about the year 50 A.D. and that the second letter to the Thessalonians now is written shortly thereafter. And when we say shortly after, we're talking many months after. Only months. As Paul is still in Corinth probably, which you can read in Acts 18. And so aside from maybe Paul's letter to the church in Galatia, 1 and 2 Thessalonians are the earliest of the Pauline corpus. Now, this second letter is really, in many ways, just a continuation of the first. The first letter was written as Paul was concerned for the very young church that he founded. As you recall, Paul was forced out of their presence by the angry mob. And so now Paul's concerned for them that while he is away, that Satan might tempt them and deceive them, which might result in their apostasy and their eternal death. And that Paul, all of the the work that Paul has done, all his laboring might be in vain. And so what was Paul's response that we read in the first letter? In chapter 3, starting in verse 1, what did Paul do? Because he was not able to get to them himself, he sends Timothy to go and see how the saints are. He sends Timothy to encourage and exhort the saints in the faith that they might not be overcome by affliction. As you recall in chapter 1 of verse 6 in the first letter, they received the word in affliction. The church was under affliction and stress and persecution from all sides. Now the stress was coming at the hands of both the Jews and the Greeks we learned as they both were trying to get the saints to abandon Christianity. The Greeks are trying to get the saints to turn back to worship the pagan gods which they once served. The Jews are telling the saints that the resurrection will not occur. That they're Loved ones who have already passed will not be with the Lord when He returns. And you can imagine the angst that this caused in the church as they thought to themselves, what do you mean? My loving, uh, my loved ones who are believers, my children, my spouse, my parents, they're going to miss out on being with the Lord? 
And yet, they shouldn't have thought this way. They shouldn't have been fooled, we were told. Because Paul says, I already told you everything that you needed to know if you would just listen to what I said. But they were letting this bad information come in which caused unrest in the church. And so we learn that Paul wrote to correct this lack of understanding in the church, to explain to the people that all, both the living and the dead, will be raised to be with the Lord. And then he instructs them how they ought to live in anticipation for our Lord's arrival. Living expectantly, we said, for the day of the Lord. And this is a a theme within the second letter now. And it has become necessary for Paul to write this second letter because it seems that people are going to great lengths to disrupt the church. They're actually writing pseudo-letters saying that they are Paul. And we read this in 2 Thessalonians. Look down at chapter 2, verses 1-3. through What does Paul say here? Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with Him, we ask you, brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit, a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us to to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. You see, people were writing letters in an attempt to deceive and alarm the saints. And so it seems like for some in the church in Thessalonica, things have gone from bad to worse. And so now Paul pens another letter to answer the lingering questions and issues that were raised to answer the wrong eschatological views that the church was now holding. In the first letter, it was, when is Christ returning? In the second letter, it's now, has Christ returned? The pendulum has swung. You know, Now they're thinking, it already passed, it already happened. Did we, did we miss out somewhere along the way? And so Paul, being the, a good steward of the Word and a shepherd to God's people, he doesn't leave them to their misunderstanding, but he writes to corral their troubled hearts and their troubled minds to direct them once more to the truth and to point them back to their hope in Christ. And so that's going to be a, a broad summary of what this second letter is about and what it intends to convey to the reader. And so looking then, beginning here in the second letter in verse 1, we see that Paul opens with his customary greeting that he does so often. And so it's almost in an identical manner to the first letter. And so he starts with that customary greeting in, in verse 1 and verse 2. And then we see in verses 3 and 4 that he offers to God thanks for the saints as the word has gotten back to Paul that their faith has increased and their love has increased towards God and one another. And so just as in the first letter, Paul thanked God for those beginnings of faith and love that they had, Paul now writes this in the second letter and doesn't forget to include to thank God for all the increase that they have thus far shown over the last few months. right? Knowing that everything beneficial comes from God above. It is all attributable to Him. And so we ought to thank God whenever we see increase in faith and love in one another. But it's really this fourth verse that we want to dig our heels in today and focus our attention on. As Paul says in verse 4, Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all persecutions and in afflictions that you are enduring. It is here in verse 4 that we perhaps see one of the greatest compliments any church could receive. As Paul sets the church of Thessalonica up as the model church for other churches. They are the example that Paul puts forth before the other churches of what a successful church looks like. 
And what's interesting though for us, what we must make note of, is this is still a church who has their own issues, right? And so we see that even the very best of churches, the churches that can be put up as the example of churches, still have their issues. They are still imperfect. We will not be perfect this side of heaven. But what's interesting then about what Paul praises them for is because what he praises them for seems to run countercultural to our society today. Because by today's standard, you think that Paul would be boasting of them, would be praising them, because maybe they have the, the largest church in town. Or perhaps because they have implemented the most cunning marketing strategy in, around. Or maybe because the, 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 the most leading men and women, the uh, highly esteemed figures of society, they, they go to that church. And so maybe that's why Paul, Paul would boast about them. Or maybe he would boast about them because they have all the, all the programs that any church could want. Right? They have the programs for like 65 and above. They have programs for toddlers, for preteens, for teens, for singles, for marrieds, young marrieds, old marrieds. Maybe they have a, a group for latte lovers and donut lovers because they just have so many groups. Right? But no, Paul's boasting has nothing to do with what this world might consider as a successful church. You see, Paul doesn't put value on what this world defines as value. He doesn't put success on this church in what the world would define as success. But rather to Paul, the successful church is simply the church that remains faithful to Christ. The church that endures persecution and affliction at the hands of others and yet does not change their doctrine. They do not alter the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And I wonder, if Paul were here today amongst us, how many churches are there today that he could say this of? In our city, in our state, in our nation, in the world. Could he say that of us here at Covenant Baptist Church? That we are an example of patience and faith, especially when confronted with persecution and suffering. And so this is what we want to focus our attention on today, brothers and sisters, is this is a huge part of this letter. Because since the very time that this church was planted, they have been dealing with persecution and with suffering. That is the reason why Paul had to escape. And now that he escaped, that persecution and suffering has now been placed upon the church. And so he writes to encourage them to stand firm. Because although this is the reality for them today, it will not always be that way. It will not always be that way. And so we're going to consider our text then under two headings this morning. The first will be the certainty of persecution. The certainty of persecution. And the second is the remedy for persecution. The remedy for persecution. So let us take up point one then. The certainty of persecution. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to, to think back when you were younger. Maybe when you are mid to late teen, you know, 15, 16, 17, 18, those times when you started to think about what I wanted to be when I got older. You know, how I wanted my life to turn out. For some, and maybe I'm being presumptuous, but probably for the ladies, it was thinking about a dream wedding, right? About feeling like a princess for a day. About eventually settling down and having a family and children in the white picket fence. Perhaps for some of you, you desired stardom. 
you want to start. You want to be that star athlete. You want to be the next Michael Jordan. Maybe some of you it was to be a next great actress or actor. And so our dreams were filled with thoughts of success, what we thought was success, all the joys of life, having beautiful vacations and prosperity and comfort and living our best life and a life full of fun and enjoyment. But our dreams weren't filled with thoughts of trials or tribulation. One thing I can be sure of is when I said, what did you want when you got older in life? None of you thought when you were younger, even if you were Christian teenagers, none of you thought, what I want for my life is persecution and suffering for the name of Christ. None of us want that. Nobody wants that. But the reality, brothers and sisters, of the matter is, if you are a Christian, this is what God has promised you. He has promised us this. God never promises the Christian earthly comfort. He never promises you ease of life. He never promises you fame and fortune. Now those things in and of themselves are not bad. But He doesn't promise them to us. We can't look to God and say, God, why am I poor? You've promised me to be rich. But what God has promised to us, brothers and sisters, is trouble is trial, is testing, is persecution, is suffering. It is these things that have been allotted to His church and to each and every one of us to varying degrees. But if you are a Christian, God has granted you suffering in your life. It is persecution that this church is destined for. Yet today, you would never know it. You would never know it because the loudest voices in Christianity, those that you see on TV, those that you see in the New York Times bestseller lists, preach something completely different. And so much of Christianity believes something completely different. A lot of them believe that the whole purpose that Christ suffered upon the cross was so that we don't have to do any suffering in this life. He suffered so we can have bigger and better things. But how wrong of thinking that is. How unbiblical that thinking is. It is because Christ has suffered that you and I must suffer too. We are told this as Jesus Himself says in John chapter 15, verse 20. Remember the word I have said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted Me, they will also persecute you. You see, it is their hatred of Christ that will cause them to persecute you. Don't be arrogant to think that the world persecutes you just because of you. No, they persecute you because they see Christ in you. And so they hate Christ, and that's why they persecute you. Even before that, we read in verse 18 that Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you. And they would love you as their own. And yet, isn't this what we see occurring all over the world? Ministers in particular congregations being loved by the world. But how can that be? Jesus says that if you are His follower, the world will hate you, not love you. But today, ministers and congregations make friends with the world, but their friendliness with society, their friendliness with those who hate Christ and hate the message, is a stamp upon the church, is a stamp upon those ministers that they are false churches and false ministers. Because the faithful minister who preaches the Word, guess what? He is going to offend the world. He is going to offend the world because the Word is offensive. 
the exclusive message of Jesus Christ and He alone for salvation is offensive to the world in which everyone has their own truth. And so that offending word will draw upon the gospel-proclaiming faithful church persecution. And so if the world loves you, church or Christian, it is probably because you have perverted the word and made it palatable for the world. Because we see the Thessalonians here, they experience suffering. And why? Because they wouldn't soften the message. And Paul tells us they, they are the example. They refuse to give up their hope in Christ or of a, the bodily resurrection. And so, so they endured trouble. But this is what the Christian life is, brothers and sisters. We've all probably heard the phrase before. You can be certain of two things in life. Death and taxes. I want to amend that for the Christian. There's three things that you can be sure of in this life. Death, taxes, and persecution. Death, taxes, and persecution. Paul explicitly says this in the first letter. Chapter 3, he says in verse 3 that Timothy came so that no one would be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were destined for this. Brothers and sisters, this isn't just true of the first century Christians. This is true for you and I as well. We are destined for this. And so we must ask ourselves, what do we desire most in life? Glory or the cross? Glory or the cross? It was actually the German theologian Martin Luther who in response to the theology of glory came up with the theology of the cross. Now, the theology of glory has various aspects to it, but one of the aspects of the theology of glory is earthly prosperity. God wants me to have more and grand things. The theology of glory says I want power and glory and comfort in this life, and we expect that God gives it to us as Christians. But brothers and sisters, the theology of glory flips Christianity on its head, doesn't it? For the Christian, we are to receive Christ by faith And then we are to worship and serve God, but the theology of glory flips it around and says, no, we are the gods. And God must now bow Himself down before us. And He must serve us. And He must worship us. And He must give us all that we desire. This is what you see in the prosperity gospel. This is what we see in the health and wealth movement. This is what we see in your best life now. To them... The dreams of grandeur that they had as children, as teenagers, are the same as now when they call themselves Christians. They still put value on those things, on earthly uh, notoriety, on fame and fortune, all the things the world loves. But now all they do is they sprinkle a little Christ on top of it and they think it's okay. This is what they see as the, the Christian life well lived. God giving to me, not what I need, but all of my wants. All of my desires. But if glory is what they want, guess what? Glory is what they shall get. But it will only be earthly glory. Heavenly glory only comes to those who take up their cross now and follow Christ. This is what we read in Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 16, verses 24 to 26. Jesus says to His disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life 
will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You see, the theology of the cross for Luther was looking to Christ's righteousness, was receiving it by faith and resting in He alone. Luther said the theology of glory calls what is good evil and what is evil good. But the theology of the cross calls a thing exactly what that thing is. The world calls suffering bad for Christ. They say suffering is a demonstration that you lack faith. But the Christian says suffering is good if it be for the sake of Christ. But only one can be right. Only one can be right. And we have the answer in Scripture here if we would just open our ears and listen. We see Paul boasts in the church in Thessalonica as being a model church. And one of the reasons for that is because they suffered. They were receiving with joy what was destined to them by God as Christians. Do you remember what happened when the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4? Do you remember when Satan took Jesus up to the highest mountains and He showed Him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory? And what did Satan say to Jesus? He said this, All these I will give to you if you but fall down and worship Me. You can only imagine the ministers in the congregations today, the Christians today who hear this and would say, I want it. Give it to Me. I'll take that. I'll take all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. How many today, Christian and minister and congregation alike, effectually say this in their words and in their deeds. They demonstrate this, whether they would admit it or not. They have traded the truth of God for a lie. Now they rather serve the creature rather than the Creator. That's because they want glory. They want to be popular with this world. They want fame. They want to be liked. They want notoriety. They want to appear successful to the world. But what did Christ choose? What did Christ choose? He rejected that glory and He chose suffering. And what did Christ look like to the world when He came? He looked like an utter failure. They thought He was coming as the Messiah to establish an earthly kingdom. And He failed because He died on the cross. But guess what? That cross was a sign of the greatest success ever. Wasn't it? And so, brothers and sisters, today the question is, what will you choose? What will you choose? Temporal, earthly glory? Or temporal suffering and eternal glory? You see, everyone who claims to be a Christian loves the cross when it has to do with what Christ did for us. But then you hear crickets when you remind them that if you are a Christian, you are told to take up your cross and follow Christ. You see, not many are willing to lose all for Christ. This is why we hear in the Gospels, the, the road is wide to eternal damnation and many will find that. The road to eternal life is narrow and few will find that. You see, brothers and sisters, we must be willing to lose all for Christ and we must stop looking at suffering as something abnormal or something that is only for a select few Christians. And rather, we ought to see suffering as an important and ordinary part of the Christian life. For just as faith has been granted to us and faith is an ordinary part of the Christian life, 
Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 that so also suffering has been granted to us. And so it too is a part of the ordinary Christian life. And yet, brothers and sisters, no one is able to bear up under the weight of the persecution of the world unless God first would grant to us faith. And this leads us to point two, the remedy for persecution. You see, God knew persecution was coming to the church. He, in fact, decreed it. But like with everything, what the world uses for evil, God takes and uses for good. And so now He enables us, He equips us, and He makes us ready for when persecution comes. And He does this by giving us faith. Giving us faith because none of us could nor would we want to deal with persecution if God has not first equipped us with the faith to do it. It is faith in Christ. Faith in His life and His death and His resurrection and what He accomplished that are foundational for us to be able to stand and withstand persecution and suffering. This is what the, the early martyrs of the church were able to do because they had faith. And so we see that faith precedes suffering, but faith never is without suffering. Suffering always accompanies faith. And that's because, brothers and sisters, suffering has a, a sanctifying effect upon the church. Suffering sanctifies us. It increases our faith. We can probably all think of a time in which we suffered at the hands of someone, whether that be a, a family member, whether it be a, a, a school friend, whether it be a co-worker, whatever it is, we, some of us have probably from a time to time have suffered at the hands of others. And what was it that you felt Right? When you were able to get through that. When you did not buckle and you did not cave, but rather you stood firm in your faith and you stood up for Christ. You probably felt good. You probably felt encouraged by it. You felt excited, filled with joy. And that's because constancy of faith through struggles coming up on the other end still standing demonstrates to the Christian that we have real faith. Being able to get through trials demonstrates to us we have real faith. We have strong faith. And it also is evidence to us that God's grace is working in our lives. And that's encouraging to the believer. And so I want you all to think, brothers and sisters, of persecution as a, as a spiritual advantage. I want you to see persecution as a, a spiritual advantage. So when it comes, we do not run from it. But rather we, we say to ourselves, how might I be conformed to the image of Christ through it? How might I be purified through it? How might I glorify God through it? I mean, think of the one who never suffers. Can they really have assurance that their faith is strong? Imagine if they've, they've never gone through anything in their life, no suffering ever. It's easy then to deceive yourself, to think to yourself, yes, I'm strong in faith because God has never tested me. He's, he's never caused me to suffer. It must mean I'm really holy. But guess what? In Scripture, the, the closest ones to Jesus were the ones who suffered the most and the ones who were physically lacking many times. We can look at Paul. He suffered. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was without food and drink, we're told. Peter suffered, was imprisoned, says, gold and silver I do not have. 
We didn't see Paul and Peter in the in the finest palaces or wearing the the Versace of the day, were they? No, they weren't. And think about, brothers and sisters, why this is to our spiritual advantage. Because when we suffer, that is when we are most dependent on God. That is when we turn to Him and we get on our knees and our heads bow to the earth as we offer our praise unto God. It is suffering that causes us to put everything in right perspective. To understand what's important in this life. Christ. Serving Him. Loving God. Loving our neighbor. These are the things that are important. Not possessions. I mean, look at the a lot of these mega church pastors, you might see interviews with them. And it's, it's really sad to see when simple questions are asked of them about uh, society and morality in society. Simple answers they should be able to answer. And yet they, they tap dance around it like Fred Astaire. Right? They, they are unwilling to offer an answer. And why do you think that is? Because the more that you love the world, the less likely you are to want to suffer for Christ. And so they don't want to have to lose anything that they have gained. That is why they are unwilling to answer the question biblically. And so we must learn from the Apostle Paul that we must count everything that we have, whether it's much or little, as nothing. It's just nothing. Not to have attachments to earthly possessions. Or not to have attachments to our, our stature or our name or our notoriety. Because then those are the times when we are most willing then to suffer for Christ. And so this is one aspect of Paul's boasting and one remedy for dealing with persecution. Having faith in Christ. Those who have genuine faith demonstrated in their suffering and being able to weather any trial through the faith that they have been granted by God. And the Thessalonian church have showed this to Paul. They have true faith. But not only does faith help us weather the storms of persecution, Paul says one other thing does too. And that is patience. Patience or steadfastness as the ESV might render it is also a remedy for persecution. As patience is a fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, what is it we read? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience among many things. Now the word for patience comes from the Greek word hupomeno. The first part, hupo, means through or under or over. And meno means to remain. And so when these two are combined, it, it means to endure through, to remain through. And so patience speaks of our ability to remain the same through suffering. And so the saints are put before the other churches as a standard for having a constant faith while remaining the same as they endure persecution and suffering. And we see something akin to this in Paul's understanding of contentment. Right? In Philippians chapter 4, when Paul's content in all things, whether having or not having. Right? Paul remained the same. He was the same person. His faith remained the same whether he had a lot or a little. He didn't have greater faith because he had more and less faith when he had little. He wasn't a happy, joyous Christian when he had much and an angry, mean Christian when he had little. No, He remained the same through. And the same is to be for you and I as we deal with persecution. We are to remain the same through it all. 
But this is only possible because of God, brothers and sisters. This is why Paul returns back to verse 3. And he thanks God. He thanks God. Right? Their faith is increasing because God causes it to increase. They bear up under the weight of persecution because God gives them the strength to bear up under it. He uses suffering for their good to build them up, to give to them greater assurance, to give to them greater faith, to grant to them greater patience, and most importantly, to glorify and to magnify the name of our Lord. And so this sets us up very nicely then for next week. Because although the church is a suffering church until the Lord returns, when He returns, the suffering will end for the church. The suffering will end and we will receive that eternal glory. But until that day comes, let our faith not be found to be failing. This is what Jesus said to Peter in Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Brothers and sisters, we ought to pray that when persecution and affliction come our way, that our faith would not fail and that we would remain the same through it all. This is what God calls upon us to do. Likewise, we must also be reading and hearing the Word constantly, sitting under the preached Word, reading at home, keeping the promises of God at the forefront of our minds so that when persecution and suffering come, we can endure. Because we're not thinking about what's happening in this moment. But our focus is, is upon that blessed hope that we have. Although our current state might not be a good one, we have that blessed hope. This is what Paul thinks of when he's in prison. He says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He's anchored in that hope, that future hope, which allows him to remain the same through it all, even though he's in prison. All right? Likewise, we must be prepared, brothers and sisters, like, like good soldiers are. Right? The good soldier is prepared for anything the enemy brings. Nothing will be a surprise to them. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us, brothers and sisters, because we are told what is to occur. Paul, in Acts chapter 14, verse 22, he says this, It is through many tribulations that the kingdom of God will come. And so this day, brothers and sisters, if you are not ready, if you don't feel ready, if you're not sure if you're ready for tribulation and persecution and suffering, suffering, ask the Lord that He might make you ready, that He might grant to you all that you need to endure persecution so that we here as a church might give other Christians the reason to, to boast in Christ as we endure suffering and yet remain patient and faithful through it all. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You for the truthfulness of it that You have told us that there will be persecution, there will be suffering, there will be tribulation. But yet, Father, that You do not leave us to ourselves to have to deal with this. You have given us Your Spirit. Father, You have given us every blessing found in Christ. You have given us faith. You have granted to us patience through it all. And so, Father, we pray that You would increase our faith and our patience this day so that we might endure suffering like a Christian should and that in our suffering we might bring glory and honor to your most holy name. And so we come before you and we pray all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.